For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. Here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Brownsville, Texas. Brownsville is located in South Texas, just on the other side of the border from Matamoros, Mexico. Situated along the banks of the Rio Grande River, this city of more than 180,000 residents boasts a rich and diverse history that spans centuries. In the early 18th century, Spanish explorers and settlers began to establish missions and ranching communities in the area. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, which ended the Mexican-American War, solidified the Rio Grande as the border between the United States and Mexico, placing Brownsville firmly within American territory. This marked the beginning of a significant change for the area as the city became a hub for trade, agriculture, and cattle ranching. The arrival of the railroad in the late 19th century further accelerated Brownsville's growth. Today, Brownsville stands as a vibrant and dynamic city, embracing its historical legacy while looking towards the future. The city's historic downtown district, with its well-preserved buildings and vibrant art scene, serves as a testament to its rich heritage. But in 1987, when one wealthy stalwart of the community died, everyone realized how he presented himself in public was actually a cover designed to hide his personal demons. Frida Sue Mowbray, who went by Susie, was raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, and had been a high school cheerleader and member of the Honor Society. After graduating, she married her high school sweetheart, Gerald Burnett, and had two children, a son named Wade and a daughter named Cricket. However, after more than 10 years of marriage, Susie and Gerald got divorced, and Susie moved with her two children to South Padre Island in Texas, where her parents owned a condo. While living on South Padre Island, she met J. William Mowbray, who went by Bill and owned the local Cadillac dealership. Bill had been married before and had a daughter named Kristen. Susie was drawn to his charisma and his good sense of humor. Bill was also a wealthy and well-respected member of the community. Susie and Bill got married in 1980 and built a custom home in Los Fresnos, a wealthy enclave of Brownsville. After seven years of marriage, on the night of September 16, 1987, 43-year-old Bill and 39-year-old Susie had been watching TV before going to bed. Bill had been having trouble with his back, this was a chronic condition, and told Susie he was going upstairs to go to sleep. She went up to bed about 30 minutes later, and as she drifted off to sleep, she heard a strange noise. She turned over and saw her husband on his side with his elbow pointing straight up in the air. Then she heard a bang, and as she sat up, she saw her husband was covered in blood. Susie ran downstairs and called 911. The first person on the scene was Estella Mauricio, who was a reserve deputy with the Cameron County Sheriff's Office, as well as a registered nurse. She found Bill with a gunshot wound to his head, but he was still alive. He was lying on his left side with the bedspread pulled all the way up to his shoulder. 
The gun was lying in blood beside him, under the covers. The bullet had entered the right side of his head, exited the left, and then went through his left hand, which was under the pillow that his head was laying on. His right hand was laying across his chest, under the covers. Emergency medical technicians arrived and began life-saving efforts to no avail. Bill Mowbray was pronounced dead at the hospital. Forensic pathologist Dr. Lawrence Dom conducted the autopsy. He noted that the entrance wound was a contact wound on Bill's right temple, so it was held directly against his head. After passing through his left hand, the bullet went through two additional pillows and lodged in the mattress. It was clear that a high-velocity weapon had been used. Initially, Dr. Dom delayed ruling on a cause of death until additional tests can be conducted. At that point, he felt it could be either a homicide or a suicide. And Kath, I think the reason that was, and I don't know if you saw this as well, but he had said that it wouldn't be uncommon in a suicide for a victim to use the hand under the head to prop it up to give it pressure so that when the gun was pressed against it, it ensured that it would be a fatal wound. So he'd seen it before with With self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Yes. No, I did not read that. Susie told deputies who spoke with her at the hospital after Bill was declared dead that he had been threatening to kill himself for years. And unbeknownst to most people he knew, he had actually tried twice over the past 10 years. Cameron County Sheriff's Lieutenant George Gavito was one of the primary investigators on the case. And even though he learned of Bill's suicide attempts, the image that was burned into his brain was one of Susie when he arrived at the Mowbray home on the night of Bill's death. She was standing outside their front door with a cigarette in one hand and a mixed drink in the other. A few days after Bill died, Lieutenant Gavito spoke with Susie at her home. Susie admitted that they had some problems in their marriage and said that at one point, Bill actually shot at her. She said this happened when she confronted him after she came home from an out-of-town trip and discovered two champagne glasses and an adult toy on their bed, which did not belong to Susie. And Kathy was being very Victorian maiden about all this. (laughs) (laughs) So we won't tell you that it was a vibrating toy. Oh, (laughs) jeez. I'm normally not a Victorian maiden. I just don't know who's listening. (laughs) Susie asked their maid what Bill had been up to while Susie was gone. The maid told her that Bill had been bringing a lady friend to the house while Susie was out of town. So the morning after finding the items on the bed, Susie confronted Bill, who became enraged and went upstairs to get a gun. Susie ran and hid in the car, and Bill shot three or four times before leaving the house. Lieutenant Gavito was also concerned when he heard that police arriving at the Mowbray house the next day to collect evidence found Susie and several of her friends in the master bedroom having what Susie called a painting party. Since police did not initially rule Bill's death a homicide, they did not secure the scene and allowed Susie to stay in the house. But now investigators wondered why it was necessary for Susie to paint over everything so quickly. Were her actions done? to cover up evidence. Then, detectives discovered that one day before Bill's death, Susie found out that Bill had made changes to their life insurance policies. His old policy, which named Susie as the beneficiary, was due to be canceled within a few days. 
And at that point, the new policy would take effect, and it named his 17-year-old daughter Kristen as the beneficiary. Kath, the policy was for $1.8 million, which I know you're all thinking, how much is that in 2023 dollars? Right. Everyone's dying to know. Exactly. That would be almost $5 million today. Police now believed they may have found their motive for Bill's murder. And Kathy, I thought this was interesting. The law in Texas, at least at that time, and I don't know if it's common everywhere, but I just it was interesting when I heard it, is that if you buy a life insurance policy, you have to have it for at least two years before it will pay out for a suicide. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I don't know if we have any rules governing that in California. My impression is that it's a policy by policy basis. See, and I just thought from all the TV shows I watch that life insurance never covers suicide. It's not uncommon for it to be one year. You cannot kill yourself within one year of your policy purchase. And like I said, though, that was a law in Texas at the time. This is 1987. Might have changed. By this time, forensic pathologist Dr. Dom had concluded Bill's death was a homicide after all in large part because there was no brain matter or blood spatter on Bill's right arm, which would have been used to pull the trigger. As Kathy mentioned, it was a high-velocity weapon, and Dr. Dom believed there would have been significant blowback on his arm. Then, seven weeks after Bill's death, Texas blood spatter expert, Austin Police Sergeant Dusty Heskew, completed his analysis of Susie's nightgown. A luminol analysis of the nightgown showed minuscule specks of what was believed to be blood. Investigators concluded that Susie straddled Bill and shot him. And now they believed this explained why Bill's right hand and arm did not have any brain matter or blood spatter. Susie Mowbray was indicted on December 4, 1987, almost three months after Bill died in their bed. That is fast. That's very fast. According to court records, the indictment accused her of intentionally killing her husband, Bill, with a 357 Ruger revolver. Susie entered a plea of not guilty and was released on a $150,000 bond. One of Susie's defense attorneys requested a venue change due to excessive pretrial publicity in the small Cameron County region. However, the request was denied after the prosecutor's office successfully argued that nobody read newspapers or listened to the nightly news anymore. In 1987. That's all people did. They were all jumping on the computers that didn't exist? Yeah, no, uh uh-uh. Well, and actually, Kathy, I thought this was interesting. When jury selection began in late May, all but five of the first 70 potential jurors they spoke with said they'd heard about the case and had already formed opinions. Of course they did. The judge probably just didn't want to let the case go. Oh, is that why? Oh, I bet I bet it was probably like a career case. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Trial began in June 1988, just over six months after Susie was charged with killing Bill. Again, this is super fast. One of her attorneys was Gerald Burnett, her ex-husband and father of her two children who practiced law in neighboring Louisiana. They must have been on really good terms. Yeah, I know. Or he was trying to get revenge on her. I'm not sure. (laughs) Sabotaging. Exactly. During opening statements, Cameron County Assistant District Attorney Ben Uresti told the jurors that Susie shot her husband as he slept in bed after the two argued over several incidents in the days before his death. The prosecutor said that on the night Bill was murdered, Susie watched some television, then walked into their second floor bedroom and shot her husband while he slept. 
defense attorney Abel Toscano intimated in his opening statement that Bill had a history of suicidal tendencies and killed himself because of significant financial problems. Prosecutor Uresti also told the jury that when Susie ran to the phone after finding Bill covered in blood, her first call was not to 911. Instead, it was to the vice president of the Cadillac dealership, Luke Fruya. Susie told investigators that she called Luke to tell him that after three years of threatening suicide on an almost weekly basis, Bill had finally done it. Luke immediately told her to hang up and call 911, which she did. One of the first witnesses called to the stand by the prosecution was the maid who worked for the Mowbrays and had lived in their home for the past four years. She testified that the Mowbrays had some arguments from time to time and were actually separated at one point for several months, during which time Bill sometimes brought another woman to the home. The maid testified that although she did not leave her room after retiring for the night, she believed that Bill had left home late on the night he died, driving away before returning a short time later. After she heard the car return, the maid heard Bill call to his dogs. She also told the jurors she did not hear any gunshots that night. The next witness was Cameron County Sheriff's Lieutenant George Gavito. According to an article in the Brownsville Herald by Basilio Hernandez in May 1988, Lieutenant Gavito testified about the interview he had with Susie at her home a few days after Bill was killed, in which she told him about Bill shooting at her. Lieutenant Gavito testified that Susie told him during this conversation that she should have divorced Bill because she knew he had been with other women during their marriage. Lieutenant Gavito also told the jurors about the shock of finding Susie and some of her friends painting the master bedroom the day after Bill died. He said the painting was done without permission, but that it was the sheriff's department's fault for not stationing a deputy at the scene. Luke Fruya, the vice president of the Cadillac dealership, testified that a couple of days before Bill's death, he told Bill he had accepted a job offer in Dallas and was leaving. The day before Bill died, Susie and Luke went out to lunch. This was a meeting arranged by Bill with the hope she could convince Luke to stay. Kathy, I think the reason Luke said this was a meeting arranged by Bill was because on the stand, prosecutors accused Luke of being romantically involved with Susie. Now, Luke was not happy with this, and he testified that it was actually Lieutenant Gavito who made that accusation, which was patently false. Luke even offered to take a lie detector test to prove it, but he was never taken up on this offer. He then admitted that three months after Bill's death, he purchased the dealership from Bill's family for $1.3 million on credit. Sergio Hernandez, who was the business manager for Bill Mowbray's car dealership, testified that when Bill died, the dealership was more than $100,000 in debt just on a cash basis. Almost $300,000 in $2023. But that did not include all the money he owed GM corporate. So, Kath, my understanding is that he was leasing vehicles off the book and he was pocketing that money. He was. He was also renting them. Yes. Yes, I read that as well. But so, this isn't something that GM was aware of because obviously you're now ruining the value of the car. But you're also engaging in something that's totally illegal because you're stealing. Exactly. You know? well, no, both of those. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of car dealerships do lease their vehicles, but you got to put the money in the dealership, not your pocket. Exactly. And in 1987, it certainly wasn't anywhere close to being as common as it is now. Right. That's Even true. Even if they did it. I don't know if they did that in 1987. I don't know. 
I don't know, but I know they do that now. But oh, yeah, everybody I mean, does e- it now. Even at the high end dealerships, they do it. Yeah. And especially Cap- at the high end dealerships. That's true. It's like Disney. Disneyland, the most brilliant thing they ever did was their annual pass. You used to have to pay for it in cash. And that was like $1,000. And who could do it? When they started allowing monthly payments, every college student, high school student in the world, they all got the passes because they could now afford it. That's funny. I didn't realize yeah. that. Oh, it boomed because of that. Hmm. And so, yeah, you're not going to spend 100 grand for a BMW, but you will spend $800 a month for it, not thinking about how much money you're throwing away. Right, right. I liked Disney, but not that much. Agreed. And not only that, it was like once everybody got these passes, Kath, it was a nightmare. That's so funny. I totally remember in the days of e-tickets. They would give you only a few e-tickets. And of course, there were like a bunch of like like three. Yeah, exactly. Well, and of course, I used to work at Knott's Berry Farm, so I've always been a little bit more inclined towards them. So you're like, meow. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're at Angel Stadium. I'm at Knott's Berry Farm. Right. (laughs) We're we're keeping it North Orange County. (laughs) Aside from doing his rentals and leasing of vehicles and pocketing the money, it was revealed in court that he was also withdrawing twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a month for personal use. And Kath, that's 80 grand. That is insane. Actually, it's not. It's fifty-five, but that's okay. <laughs> what are you talking about? I said twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a month. It's 80 grand in 2023 dollars. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were trying to add them together. I'm Every like, this s- is oh. really interesting. Okay. <laughs> everything's about $20, I know, but you know what? I don't even care. <laughs> yes, you do. You care a lot. Don't say that. I'm not respected. <laughs> so people were thinking, because he had these small side businesses, which by the way, they didn't get into in court, that he was using his personal 25 to 30 to take care of those businesses, hoping they would become fruitful and therefore he could pay back the car dealership. But that never happened. In addition to the $1.8 million life insurance policy, and this was the one that his daughter Kristen was scheduled to be the beneficiary of, there were other multiple policies that were in the process of being changed. Insurance agent Robert Swanter testified that Bill was in the process of consolidating several additional policies and again removing Susie as the beneficiary. On these policies, Bill replaced her with the Small Business Administration as the main beneficiary and the car dealership as the secondary beneficiary. Like the $1.8 million insurance policy, these changes had not yet gone into effect when he died. So I thought it was interesting that it was going to the Small Business Administration because who has a federal agency as your beneficiary? Yeah, who would want that? But it's because if you get a small business loan, which we're now assuming he did, if you die, they actually have first right to any money that you leave your heirs. And so he was making sure that this policy would hopefully cover whatever his loan was. And then once the Small Business Administration is paid back, whatever's left over can go to your beneficiaries. But they will come and get your money, period. And on these policies count, the car dealership was the secondary beneficiary, which presumably would have been owned by his family. Right. In addition to the pathologist testifying that it would be impossible for Bill to have shot himself and not get blood on his right hand, the prosecution also called Sergeant Dusty Heskew to the stand. He told the jury that he is the only blood spatter expert in Texas who is recognized by the Department of Public Safety and is the person who found minute traces of blood on Susie's nightgown 
with the use of luminol. Sergeant Heskew testified that he first tested the blood on Susie's nightgown with a hemostick, which is used by doctors to detect blood in urine. According to his testimony, the hemostick showed high-velocity blood spatters on the nightgown, which he said can only occur from gunshot wounds or a car accident. By the way, this I thought was interesting because obviously if I hit you in the head with a baseball bat, please don't, there might be an issue there. I agree. I thought that was awfully exact Very in terms exa- of what can cause it. Exactly. So, but again, this is his testimony. And if she hits me in the head with a baseball bat, I've got a lot of witnesses. That's true. You just better watch yourself, Missy. <laughs> During his testimony, Sergeant Heskew got off the stand and knelt on the floor over a dummy and told the jury that this was how Susie shot her husband. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. (laughs) So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Susie Mowbray did not testify in her own defense 
but her lawyers brought friends and relatives to the stand to testify that Susie wasn't capable of murdering her husband. Susie's father, Bill Wright, testified that she told him that night, Daddy, Bill has shot himself. Kathy, say it with an accent. (laughs) Well, Daddy, Bill has gone and shot himself. Okay. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) And Susie's father, Mr. Wright, actually testified that at one point, Susie fainted and he had to catch her. During Mr. Wright's testimony, the defense played a taped interview at the hospital the night of the shooting with Detective Roger Olson. On the tape, when the detective asked Susie if she had a lawyer, Susie turned to her dad and said, Daddy, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't need a lawyer. Mary Lou Ryan Ray, a former lawyer for Bill Mowbray, testified that in the spring of 1985, just over two years before he died, he asked her to review some life insurance policies for him for double indemnity and suicide clauses. Ms. Ray testified that she delayed reviewing the policies for as long as possible because she was afraid if she told Bill that he was covered in the event of suicide, he would kill himself immediately. She told the jury that Bill told her that he had once attempted to kill himself with a gun. Now, Kath, this revelation, one of the prosecutors jumped up and said, um, aren't you violating attorney-client privilege by discussing Bill's personal life that he disclosed to you? Ms. Ray responded that, no, in fact, I'm not, because this statement had been made by Bill in writing on his insurance applications. Right. So she knew the law. Like no privilege. Exactly. Right. Austin psychiatrist Walter Riffslager. Riffslager. <laughs> Come on, it's German. That also means not frizzy hair this time, which is funny, but ripe storage. Ripe storage. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I actually mispronounced it on purpose so that you guys no, can hear didn't. Kathy scream German into the microphone. Riffslager. Exactly. So, Austin psychiatrist Walter Reifschlager was also brought to the stand. Dr. Reifschlager, I know I'm saying that wrong. No, you aren't. That's correct. Dr. Reifschlager was also a marriage counselor and met with Bill and Susie twice in that capacity. He testified that he was sure Bill committed suicide because Bill had told him about his business problems and said he would kill himself before going to jail or going broke. Other than Bill Mowbray's business manager testifying that Bill had major financial problems, the prosecution never addressed the issue. So the defense called Joseph Went, Bill's accountant for more than 20 years, to the stand. Mr. Went testified that his finances were so critical at the time of his death that Bill would have had to bring in outside money or sell the dealership to get out from under his debt. Mr. Went told the jury that he and Bill were about to be indicted on criminal charges by the IRS and face significant jail time. But he recently learned that federal agents were planning to drop the charges against him, but not Bill. He testified that if Bill were still alive, he would be in major trouble with the IRS. Then the defense brought three women who were friends of Susie's to the stand to address the accusation by Lieutenant Cavito that Susie painted the master bedroom the day after Bill died without getting permission. Two of Susie's friends testified that they in fact received permission to paint the bedroom from the deputies who were present at the scene. One of them actually testified that she was given permission to remove the furniture. She testified that she had planned to clean the carpet and the furniture, but deputies told her that the blood could not be removed and would stink more and more throughout the years. This witness also said that the deputies told her the carpet and furniture should be destroyed once it was removed from the house. 
The third friend testified that her husband and son were with her that day to help remove furniture and carpeting, but were delayed because they were waiting for the sheriff's department to approve the removal. Three weeks after trial began, the case went to the jury. On June 9, 1988, nine months after Bill Mowbray died, Susie Mowbray was found guilty of his murder. That same day, she was sentenced to life in prison. Susie's family was stunned. Susie's ex-husband, Gerald Burnett, hired an appellate attorney named Robert Ford to work on her appeal. According to a Los Angeles Times article by Elizabeth Hudson, Susie's son Wade was 16 years old when his mother was convicted. From that point on, he was focused only on getting his mother released from prison. He even decided to follow our footsteps and enroll in law school. Yours, mine, and Kim Kardashian's? Exactly. Defense attorney Robert Ford made multiple unsuccessful appeals. Then, Susie's son Wade discovered something that changed the game. Five years after Susie was convicted, Wade began reviewing court records and testimony from the trial. What he found was a report that was never referenced in the trial. A nationally renowned blood spatter expert who consulted with the prosecutors said there was no blood on Susie's nightgown, and therefore she could not have shot her husband. With his mother's attorney, Robert Ford, Wade, who was now a law student, filed a request for a new trial. This was seven years after Susie was convicted of killing her husband. After a series of hearings, in December 1996, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ordered a new trial. Susie was released from prison six months later after posting a $35,000 bond while she awaited a new trial. Susie Mowbray's second trial began on January 12, 1998, and it had received enough national attention that it was covered on court TV. The 16-year-old boy who watched his mother get convicted in 1988 was now 26 years old and a third-year law student at Louisiana State University, and he was now serving as the chief investigator for the defense team. At the beginning of the second trial, the prosecutor's opening statement changed from Susie killed her husband for money and instead alleged that Susie continued to give different stories about what happened on the night Bill died. The prosecutor basically said, when Susie talks about it, she tells lies. She's a lying liar who lies? That's right. That was pretty much what they were saying. The defense's opening statement again focused on Bill's mental health and significant debt. And Kath, rather than focusing on the family and friends and bringing in character witnesses, this trial really focused on Bill's crushing debt and the criminal probe by the IRS. But it also focused on his significant mental health issues. One of the people who did not testify at the first trial was Bill's banker. He came in at the second trial and he basically said, hey, a few days before Bill died, he came to my office to get a loan. I told him I couldn't give him one, and he said if I didn't give him a loan that day, he was going to kill himself. The banker, of course, was extremely distressed, and Kath, I want to say the loan was like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's what I remember it being. But he literally could not give Bill the loan. He was was, a bad risk. Yes, Bill was not qualified for this kind of loan. And so, of course, the banker felt horrific. The banker testified that Bill left his office distraught. And another person who came to the stand was an employee of Bill's car dealership who told the jury that Bill shot himself during a suicide attempt a decade earlier. 
He told the jury that Bill was distressed about his financial problems and was very prone to severe mood swings. And the previously mentioned psychiatrist, Dr. Reifschlager, did I say that wrong? You said it correctly. Sorry, I know you were trying not to do it right. (laughs) Damn it. He also testified at the second trial. He told the jury that Bill had a personality disorder and was a strong suicidal candidate. And what I don't know, Kath, did he actually diagnose him with any kind of like bipolar or manic depression or anything? You know, he didn't. And it was something that the prosecution pointed out. As we mentioned in the first trial, Dr. Reifschlager said that he met with Susie and Bill twice. Right. And so the prosecution said, you met with them for four hours. How are you diagnosing this? And he was like, I'm a psychiatrist. I didn't officially diagnose it. He was there to talk to them about their marriage problems, but he certainly knows what he sees. Interesting, because at this trial, he basically says this IRS chasing Bill was serious enough for him to have considered suicide over prison. So, Kathy, Luke Fruya, this is the former vice president of Bill's Cadillac dealership who had bought the dealership after three and a half months. Right. He was again called to the stand. And it was really interesting. He started by testifying that he had actually worked at the dealership for 18 and a half years before he purchased it. He started as an employee in the service department and then worked his way up. Service manager, sales, sales manager, general manager, vice president. He testified that he was aware the bill was heavily in debt and owed several banks and the GM corporate office. Just prior to Bill's death, Luke was approached by a mutual friend who wanted to buy the dealership to help Bill out. The offer was $1 million. But when Luke took it to Bill, Bill wouldn't accept it. He said he'd need at least $2 million to pay off all of his debts. Luke said that after he purchased the dealership, he took on some of Bill's debt. This was the debt that really involved the vehicles on the lot, but certainly did not take all of it on. But as a result of Bill's financial misconduct with the dealership. And by the way, I'm assuming this came to light after Luke purchased it. Correct. Okay. When Luke became the owner, he couldn't pay the bills. There was no cash to be had. And as we mentioned, he purchased the dealership on credit. So he said because of what Bill had done, all of the creditors started demanding their services had to be cash on delivery. Nobody would extend them credit. Even General Motors would not extend credit. And what they did is they took all the titles of the cars so that they couldn't be sold off the books or rented off the books or anything like that. But then that causes a delay in processing a sale. Right. So he said that what he actually had to do when he first got there is he and the staff pulled together anything they could sell that they actually owned, whether it was equipment or tires or, I mean, obviously not the cars anything. And they essentially had a fire sale in the service lanes just to get cash to pay the staff and get the work done. Damn, that is incredible. He was close to tears in quite a bit of this testimony, just remembering it. But part of that was also because he was very close to Bill and his death was painful. Exactly. Sergeant Dusty Heskew, the prosecution's blood spatter expert in the first trial, was also called by the defense. Kathy, he was only on the stand for a few minutes. And I know you've been in court enough. Certainly, I've watched enough TV. (laughs) You're not on the stand for a few minutes. But they just asked him a couple of questions. The first question they asked was, were you aware that you were the second person the prosecution came to to find blood spatter evidence? Yes, I was aware. And they said, do you know who the first person was they contacted about blood on the nightgown? And he said, well, yes, it was Dr. Herbert McDonnell. Well, is he any good? And Sergeant Heskew described Dr. McDonald as basically the godfather of soul. (laughs) 
I'm paraphrasing, but essentially <laughs> otherwise known as the person everyone in the nation refers to as the founder of blood spatter interpretation. Then Sergeant Heskey was asked to confirm that after testifying at the first trial that there was blood spatter on Susie's nightgown, seven years later, he now admitted that he didn't know if it was really blood. What had happened, Kathy, is that when Sergeant Heskew did this luminol procedure that we talked about and using the hemostick, luminol does not actually find blood. It finds blood and other substances. So when you spray it on a fabric, it glows, but then it goes away after like 30 seconds. So now you know where you have to look for blood. So the luminol glowed, but Sergeant Heskew admitted he never followed up and actually tested those areas to see if it actually was blood. Basically, he used this hemostick, which is not a true blood test. Right. The defense attorney said, so what you're saying is, is that your tests on Susie's nightgown were scientifically invalid. And Sergeant Heskey said, yes, they were. Mic drop. Yeah, no kidding. After Sergeant Heskey's testimony, his very brief testimony, the final and most critical witness took the stand, and that was forensic expert Dr. Herbert McDonald. He walked the jury through his analysis of Susie's nightgown and how he was able to scientifically determine that there was no blood on it. And as a result of that, Dr. McDonald said Bill's death was suicide and not homicide. And Dr. McDonald also testified how he was a consultant for the prosecution. In no uncertain terms, he delivered this information to them. He was never called as a witness and the information was disregarded. So now, Kath, the prosecution at the second trial is like, row, row, what are we going to do? So they call this guy, Dr. Vincent DeMaio. Now, he's the chief medical examiner in San Antonio. Dr. DeMaio was hired as a consultant by the prosecutors at the first trial, but he also never testified. And the point of his testimony at the second trial was really simple. He was using sort of a common sense approach, not a scientific approach. He basically said if Bill had killed himself, there would have been at least some blood on his right hand and arm, but investigators testified that they saw none. The defense, of course, was smart enough to have addressed this. And Dr. McDonald testified, hey, look, in a situation where there are emergency medical technicians doing resuscitation efforts, it is not uncommon that evidence is wiped away. And what I thought was very interesting in this case is that either Susie shot him or Bill shot himself. Both of their hands were tested for gunshot residue and there was none. The defense's implication is that Susie had no gun in her hand and the EMTs in their resuscitation efforts and their delivery of Bill to the hospital and probably getting IVs in him and all that kind of stuff eliminated some evidence. Courtroom drama worthy of a Beyond TS movie of the week, which our longtime listeners know means based on a true story, occurred on the last day of trial as prosecutors wrapped up their closing arguments. According to an article in The Monitor by journalist Pauline Ariaga, just minutes before the jurors were set to leave the courtroom to begin deliberations, Susie unexpectedly became the center of attention. Falling onto the defense table, Susie began sobbing and screamed, Go, Kath. I didn't do it. Please don't let them do this to me again. Oh, God, I didn't do it. I loved him. I think she was louder, but we'll go with what Kath said. <laughs> The eight-woman, four-man jury stared in shock at Susie as she wailed. Her son rushed to her side as the judge ordered bailiffs to escort Susie from the courtroom. And then once she was removed, the judge, of course, said, yeah, you can just disregard that outburst. 
And what's funny is the prosecution didn't ask for a mistrial. That is funny. I know, because you know from your and Kim Kardashian's, you know, first year law school endeavors that you can't what? Unring the bell. Boom, girl. Well done. I'm so good. Well done. (laughs) The judge said you have to decide the case based on the evidence that you heard during this two-week trial. On January 24th, 1998, this is 10 and a half years after Bill Mowbray was killed. After two days of deliberations, the jury came back with a verdict. Not guilty. Susie's son and daughter rushed to their mother's side to hug her. After the verdict, jury foreman Edward Saldivar took the unusual step of reading a letter from all the jurors regarding their decision. Now, full disclosure, I could not (laughs) find a copy of this letter, but based on news articles, it said in part that the outcome of the trial was due to the improper handling of evidence and that the prosecution was unable to prove Susie's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. After the acquittal, Bill's brother Jim was stunned. Jim said he was disgusted, to say the least, because there was no question in his mind that Susie committed the murder. He believed the jury acquitted her to punish Cameron County prosecutors for inappropriate behavior, which he also didn't believe was an accurate description of their actions. And yet, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals respectfully disagreed with him. Yeah, at least after the first trial, that's true. Outside the courtroom, after she was acquitted, Susie thanked her son and her attorneys, and she also said, thank God, and most of all, thank the jury. The next day, in an article in the Monitor, Associated Press journalist Pauline Arriaga reported that at a victory party following her acquittal, Susie and her family discussed their plans for the future. First up was making the rounds at the national talk shows, beginning with flying to New York to appear on the Today Show. After that, Susie planned to return to Dallas, where she'd been living with her daughter since being released from prison a year prior, and she was going to take life just one day at a time. As for her son, Wade, he said he wasn't sure what the future held for him. He was scheduled to graduate from Louisiana State Law School just a few months later, but didn't know if he wanted to practice law after living through his mother's legal nightmare. But he didn't want to make a decision based on how he felt at that point and would decide what was next after he had a little time and space from his mother's case. And we looked him up, and it turns out he became a lawyer in Louisiana. Thank you for listening, and we want to thank one of our listeners, Melissa, who gave us this case suggestion. And if you didn't listen at the beginning of it, we are on Patreon. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors. It is a great holiday gift. Oh, it is. It is. And hostess gift. If you like extra content with no ads, please join us. Oh, and we also have bloopers, by the way. Oh, only at certain levels. Only at the second and third levels. But you know, it's just a little bit more money. Exactly. And you're worth it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 